Today, we continue our message series from the book of 1 Peter entitled, Rumors of Hope. And over the last two weeks, millions of Americans have made the choice to risk COVID-19 infection by gathering en masse to protest the killing of George Floyd and racism against blacks in our country. And this decision is perilous because we've worked so hard to flatten the curve of infection and there will be more infections and deaths as a result of protests. But given the moment we're in, with momentum building toward systemic change in flattening another curve, the curve of injustice and discrimination, protesters became stewards of a moral imperative justifying the risk. Over 2,000 years ago, Christians in the Roman Empire made the perilous choice to risk recrimination and abuse by identifying themselves as Christians. They came to understand that every person who experiences God's grace becomes a steward or agent of grace to flatten the curve of despair and sin in the world. They considered that sharing the reason for their hope and resisting cultural forms that didn't fit their new life in Christ as a moral imperative. For them, it was a choice between submitting to unjust suffering or selfishly staying quiet about their faith and living like a Roman. The question for us in the moment that we're in is, what is required of us? How shall we pattern our lives after Christ's life as stewards of grace? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Peter identifies every believer as a steward of God's grace. The term Peter uses in this passage for steward is a compound of house and law, a law of the household. It has the idea of a manager or administrator of a set of resources. In Peter's day, stewards were often slaves entrusted with great estates, often well-educated with proven ability. To be deemed a faithful or excellent or trustworthy steward required shrewd administration of resources that accomplished the master's goals. Jesus used this same term in the parable of the shrewd manager, who after being castigated by his master for his shabby approach to managing the resources delegated to his charge, made better management decisions out of self-interest. Stewards have a sphere of authority commensurate with their responsibility and are held accountable for the proper use of resources in their charge. The question that remains uh, is whether we'll be faithful to our commission and what the Lord has left in our charge. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. We become faithful stewards of God's grace by forming our life in Christ's life, uh, living this cruciform life, cruciform lives in the pattern of the great commandment. In Matthew 22, uh, verse 37 Jesus replied this way. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, just as Jesus's cross had a vertical beam and a horizontal beam, stewards of grace live two directional lives, vertically loving God and then horizontally loving others. The cruciform life traces the lines of Christ's life and illustrates Christ's sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. It says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So first, as stewards of grace, uh, we are called to love God by choosing suffering over sin. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. And as a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, Christians in the first century were viewed as killjoys, who lived gloomy lives, devoid of pleasure, because they abstained from popular forms of Roman entertainment. The theater with its risque performances, chariot races, uh, and the gladiatorial fights um, with their blood and gore didn't feel right. In addition, Christians abstained from indulging one's temper, uh, sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, slandering, and lying. They were straight edge. And their attitudes toward Roman customs and morals combined with their refusal to burn incense to the emperor, uh, which was a gesture of civic pride intended to assure the well-being of the empire, earned Christians the reputation of being haters and traitors to the Roman way of life. And as a result, they lost a number of former friends uh, who were indignant that they had chosen to follow a crucified Jew over hanging out with them. They were marginalized and misunderstood and became handy scapegoats for whatever difficulties befell the communities they lived in. It wasn't fair. In fact, it was unjust. It was unjust suffering and something Jesus experienced in the flesh uh, and could help them with as they formed their life in his. Now, the key to enduring unjust suffering without retaliating or losing faith in God is arming ourselves with the same attitude, the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Uh, The foremost example of Jesus's attitude is referenced in Philippians chapter two and in the description of Jesus's self-emptying by taking on the form of a bondservant, taking on the form of humanity. And the humility reflected in the incarnation guided Jesus throughout his life. It would not do justice to his human nature to assume that he fulfilled God's plan without considering those those consequences. Uh, But Jesus humbled himself. He decided to humble himself to the Father's will, even though it meant suffering, exhausting trials, and led to an excruciating death. His attitude was that experiencing unjust suffering is better than experiencing sin. And following in Jesus's footsteps, It means picking up our cross and daily facing a culture unfriendly to our values with the resolve that led Jesus to the cross. And Jesus Jesus chose suffering over sin and made it possible for us to do the same. 
Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. It says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died, and by this Paul means someone who has died in Christ, which is symbolized in baptism, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Peter introduces us to the idea of productive suffering or meaningful suffering, which isn't the way we typically think about it. Uh, Suffering becomes meaningful when it is undergone for the sake of others. Viktor Frankl, a psychotherapist and survivor of the Holocaust, observed that those who survived the death camps with dignity were precisely those who found sufficient meaning in their dire predicament. And those who couldn't find any meaning were slowly destroyed and perished. Frankel quoted Nietzsche's saying, uh, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. Jesus had a why to live for. Um, His sufferings absorbed our sin in order to nullify it, to make it of no effect, to save us. Um, And this is what carried him through the how, the how of crucifixion and rejection. Uh, He took our sin into his body so that we are no longer condemned but forgiven and we're set free from its control. And now we can pattern our lives after Christ because the power of sin is broken. Suffering due to sin or sinning due to suffering fails to reflect the meaning found in the suffering we experience in this life. But when we suffer unjustly in Jesus's name, we nullify the sins of others in our bodies. We crush it by absorbing it without retaliation. And this is how Christ changes the world through us. Peter makes a surprising claim. He says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. So absorbing the pain of unjust suffering makes us one with Christ somehow uh, and his message in ways that fellowship, worship, and prayer cannot. It's because our bodies are at stake. We're identifying with Christ in the physical realm. We're connected with his incarnation and his experience of it. And somehow it makes a deeper impression than an incredible worship moment or season of prayer, as essential as those are. Suffering in the flesh purges our spirit. And now we're done with it. We're done with sin. We see what it did to Christ. We see what it does to us. We see what it does to others. And we want no part of it, no matter the cost. There's something powerful about willingly undergoing suffering that we don't deserve in Jesus's name. It binds us to Christ. It anchors our lives to the gospel. When we suffer unjustly, we demonstrate that we are done with sin, even when tempted by people and pleasures we formerly enjoyed. In 1 Peter 4, verses 3 and 4, Peter goes on. He says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. In this sense, pagans is used for any person who is not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether a Jew or what might be called a Gentile. A pagan is used in the sense of someone who is not a person of faith in Christ. And so, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, 
drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. Now, if you accepted Christ at a young age, you might struggle to relate to this. I was raised in a Christian family and was led to Christ by my first grade Sunday school teacher at the age of five. And to this day, I'm not sure whether it was Christ's love or the reward of a genuine simulated replica of the Dead Sea Scrolls given to every child that went forward that compelled me to respond to the invitation that day, uh, taken by my hand by my mother walking forward, uh, but leaving my Dead Sea Scrolls under the seat, never to be seen again. At that point, my sordid past included uh, poor performance in potty training and smacking my buddy Lloyd with a plastic shovel, but no debauchery or carousing yet. But at this point in the growth of the church, these were adults who were coming to Christ, and they were being saved out of some pretty wild situations that were standard in the culture of that day. And, and then they were leading their households to Christ. This, this was the, the establishment of Christian families. Um, having received forgiveness through Christ, uh, they became responsible as stewards of grace. And none of the things that Peter's, Peter mentions in this list uh, fit that role. The practices mentioned reflect unrestrained, out-of-control desires for sex and food and drink, um, behavior that just lacked moral constraint. Three of the terms refer to excessive acts of eating and drinking um, that would have been connected to uh, festivals around Bacchus and Saturnalia. A few in the first century cared if Christians worshiped Jesus, but they found it highly offensive for them to label other religions as idolatrous and refuse to participate, uh, alienating them from friends and business associates. Family members were incensed by their lack of concern for family traditions they'd practiced all these years, now cast aside for their newfound faith. It just seemed so careless and condescending to them. Moreover, it was considered dangerous for even one segment of the community to slight the gods, whose wrath was, net, was ever to be feared. Civic peace, the success of agriculture, freedom from earthquakes and floods were regularly attributed to the benevolence of the gods. And rather than following their good example, many of their pagan friends instead abused them. They maligned them. And the abuse and slander they suffered uh, was righteous suffering for Christ's sake. Our pluralistic age has created a similar ethos where everything is acceptable except the exclusive claim of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we may experience unjust suffering simply because we believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But Peter gives assurance that even though it is difficult to live for the Lord Jesus, uh, we're on the right side of the gospel verses 5 and 6. It says, but they have to give an account. Uh, these folks that are abusing and maligning them, they will have to give an account to him, God, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in, in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Following Christ can mean leaving old friends behind uh, to live a new life. Uh, 
But Peter reminds them that God always has the last word. And the gospel is a story of God's forgiveness as well as judgment for those who do not accept the truth about Jesus. Death doesn't invalidate the promises or the warnings of the gospel. Those who reject Christ and mock Christians will give an account of their life before God. And those who accept Christ and steward God's grace will receive the reward soon enough. Now, not only do stewards of grace love God by choosing unjust suffering over sin, but they also steward grace by loving others by choosing sacrifice over self. First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, it begins, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober of mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Peter begins, the end of all things is near. Here he sounds like a prophet of doom, but really it's quite the opposite. Peter moves to the future to motivate his readers' lifestyles in the present. What one believes about the future, it shapes how we live live today. Uh, Warnings like the one in 1 Peter 4, uh, verse 7 that we just read, um, or 2 Peter 3.10, where it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. They weren't intended to strike fear, but to encourage giving God our full attention. And just as many authors write the endings of their books first, Peter calls us to begin with the end in mind and work back from there. In 2 Peter 3.11, it says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? Uh, You ought to live holy and godly lives. Now, the Bible doesn't buy into the myth of progress, that every day in every way we're getting better and better um, through better methods and better techniques, better therapy, better self-development, better science, better computer know-how. The world somehow is evolving into something that is better. Now, there's no disputing the incredible advance of science, technology, and medicine, but can we look at the world in the state that it's in today and say things are better? Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says, The heart is deceitful about all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That is the core problem with our world. It's the darkness of our hearts. And the world will not change. It will not consummate into something that reflects uh, God's desire, the kingdom of God, until Christ returns, until the end of history and the redemption of humanity. Earlier, Peter announced that Jesus has been made known during the last times inaugurated by the resurrection of Christ. And here he, he isn't guaranteeing that it will happen soon, 
His point is that Christ's return, it's imminent. There's nothing that needs to happen before that happens. Jesus could come anytime. And so we too are living in the last stage of God's redemptive process after Jesus's resurrection and ascension. It is it is no more or no less true that the end is near today than it was when Peter first said it. Uh, the timing is up to the Lord. But Peter provides direction. He mentions this because he wants to provide direction on ways to steward grace until that time comes, until Jesus returns. And these are the things that truly do make the world a better place. Each requires a personal sacrifice that focuses on the needs of others. And we love others by choosing sacrifice over self, Peter says, by being clear-minded, self-controlled, and sober, in contrast to the drunkenness and loss of control uh, that he's already mentioned. Self-control and sobriety are a far cry from the confusion of debauchery and idolatry, excessive drinking and sex. Um, uh, that is an unfortunate pattern for many. Uh, a steward of grace willingly forgoes anything that diminishes alertness to pray, uh, which is our first duty and our greatest resource. Prayer without ceasing while drinking without ceasing do not go together. Now minds can focus on the fundamental resource of the Christian life prayer. And Peter's readers had much to pray about. They were being ostracized and unfairly criticized. It would require focus and alertness to respond as a steward of grace and to pray for those set against them. Christ's mindset requires an inner life, a soul clarity to respond according to who we are, not how others treat us. Stewards of grace choose sacrifice over self also by loving each other deeply. Peter gives this one the above all, above all, love each other deeply because it provides the motivation for the other things he's mentioning here. It's the motivation for us to pray, the motivation to offer hospitality, the motivation to serve others. We're living in a uniquely stressful moment. The civil unrest has added another layer to the stress and uncertainty of COVID-19. And stress compresses our, emotion, our emotional margin, um, and it, it leaves little love to share. Humanly speaking, uh, we may reach down and find nothing. But this is why a clear mind ready to pray is so important because this is how we access the power of the Holy Spirit. As we turn toward God and humble ourselves, prayer uh, clears and focuses our minds. Uh, we are filled with God's Spirit, and it makes us possible to love in a way that we couldn't otherwise, to love sacrificially. The term translated deeply, love each other deeply, has, has the idea of being earnest, um, intent on a, a goal, steadfastly, Pursued. It's not about emotional intensity, but more about love that persists through difficult circumstances. Earnest love persistently covers destructive forces by extinguishing sin. Earnest love persistently covers destructive forces by extinguishing sin. Proverbs 10.13 says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. Hatred stirs up dissensions, but love covers and calms things down. We have seen this over and over again in the George Floyd protests. 
how when there is a response of love and patience and care, that everything calms down immediately. A love that covers sins is best understood as a forbearance that does not let wrongs done come to their fullest and most virulent expression. Love endures everything. It endures to the last. It isn't interested in being right. It's interested in making peace. It's love that absorbs and it smothers evil. This isn't about sins being forgiven by God, but it's a Christian loving others and in so doing, covering another person's sin by not responding in kind and escalating the conflict. Have you found it true when your child or spouse or housemate snaps at you um, that with a presence of mind, if you wait a beat and don't snap back, but respond in a way that encourages a different response, you change the energy of that exchange? Well, you just covered sin. You've returned a blessing for a curse. Love refuses to retaliate, returning a blessing for a curse. Love diffuses the anger of another, and it makes it of no effect. Love without truth is sentimentality, but agape love, it's got truth in it. Opposition and suffering can bring out the worst in a person or the best, but the fundamental characteristic of community is deeply loving others with sacrificial love. We love others by choosing sacrifice over self, not only by loving them deeply and keeping our minds clear for prayer, but also through offering hospitality, uh, but doing so without complaint. The term for hospitality is a compound of uh, the words for love and stranger, means stranger love, love of the stranger. Because suitable inns were few and far between in the first century, Offering lodging was both a practical necessity and a mutual courtesy. Hospitality formed the foundation of the Christian movement and is more than just opening up our home. Hospitality uh, is the way that we accommodate others into our life, making them feel at home with us. Hospitality requires mindfulness to another's needs and a desire to serve. We're called to regularly express our love for Christ and each other through hospitality without grumbling, without murmuring. Uh, the term Peter uses is an animoanapia, a word that sounds like it means like oink or meow or roar or chirp or burp. Here the term is gogusmas. That's the Greek term. You can just hear gogusmas, murmuring, the low muttering of dissatisfaction, the things that we might say under our breath, even as we are showing hospitality and sharing something. Well, this won't do. If we open our home and complain about our guests, we've failed to show hospitality because it requires the humility evident in Jesus's attitude. This is where hospitality gets hard. It requires prayerful minds and deep, persistent love to show hospitality as a steward of the grace we've received. Open-heartedness toward another is the basis for our hospitality, willingness to minister to others even when relationships get strained. And in a hostile world, Christians are sanctuaries, citadels of grace, hosting the joy and generosity of the kingdom of God. And then finally, Peter addressed the stewardship of gifts of grace. He talks briefly about spiritual gifts given by God for the purpose of serving others. 
Spiritual gifts are not fundamentally a privilege, but a responsibility, a call to be faithful to what God has bestowed. Peter says if anyone speaks or if anyone serves, um, and in so doing, he literally covers all of the spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament. Prophecy, serving, teaching, encouragement, giving, leadership, mercy, words of wisdom and knowledge, faith, tongues, and so on, are, offer, are offered recognizing recognizing that they are stewards uh, of the gift of God's grace. We don't own these gifts, but they pass through us. God provides the strength for service so that Christ is praised and he is glorified. Let's close. Last week, a man named Forrest Fenn, a wealthy gentleman living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, announced that a $1 million treasure chest he buried in the Rocky Mountains in 2010 had finally been found. Fenn hid a box laden with 40 pounds of emeralds, rubies, gold coins, and diamonds in the Rocky Mountains somewhere between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the Canadian border. And it's estimated that 350,000 people uh, hunted for the the treasure and worked through the clues. But the person who finally discovered it has remained anonymous. This person doesn't want to be accountable for stewarding their treasure. And and we would agree that they have the right to that. After all, it is their treasure now. But anyone who calls upon the Lord and receives salvation in his name is a steward of the riches found in Jesus Christ, riches of grace, and remaining anonymous is not an option. Responsibility is attached to this reward. Salvation is not static. We have been saved from something to something. We don't own these riches, but they're ours to steward, to cultivate and invest. And Jesus bore our sins in his body to break the power of sin in our lives so that we could live a new life in the pattern of his, the cruciform life, shaped like Jesus's cross, loves God by choosing unjust suffering over sin, and loves others by choosing sacrifice over self. God provides the riches of grace and gives us the authority to dispense them, and no one else can fulfill our responsibility. In the midst of this pandemic and this crucial cultural moment that we find ourselves in, how will we fulfill ours? 